1: Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. Welcome to Development Hell. For every horror movie that hits VOD, countless others end up DOA. Development Hell is the podcast dedicated to unearthing these cursed horror productions. We're going to find out what went wrong and then decide if these titles still stand a shot at the green light. I am your host, Josh Corngut. I am the managing editor of Dread Central. I am also a filmmaker in Toronto, Canada. This podcast is a proud member of the Dread Podcast Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to a brand new episode of Development Hell. Today, we are talking about the HBO Max series that never was, Overlook. So this was going to be an extension of The Shining Universe by Stephen King, and this was going to be happening back in about 2020, and it never happened. And today we're going to discover why. Today we are welcoming back a returning guest judge. We have with us Jinx. Jinx, how's it going?
0: Hey Josh, I'm uh I'm just sitting <laughs> down here in my dungeon, having mm-hmm. a great old time. Finally acclimated. Guess oh. I'm an institutionalized man now, and uh just grinning ear to ear, playing uh playing around here in the dark. So uh just just appreciate well, you putting me up.
1: Good. You know, you are always such a team player, and I'm just so excited that, you know, you're just making it work. That's so jinx of you, and I appreciate it as Always, and I like what you the carpet. It's got a, like a distinct pattern. It's like you know. I feel like this whole room has a real mood to it now. So that's uh, that's urine, Josh. Oh, uh, uh, it does. It smells. It smells like that and worse. But that's okay. It's what's to be expected. The different topics that we're going to be going through today are, of course, going to include the Overlook series that didn't happen. But we're going to take a look at the entire extended Shining universe. So that's going to include the book. The film, the sequel book, Doctor Sleep, the sequel film, Doctor Sleep, and then we're going to wrap it up with the Unmade Overlook series. So something that we've talked about, well, I've talked about before, I don't know, have you and I ever got, dug into Stephen King before, Jinx? Uh, if we did,
0: I've forgotten about it in all the trauma <laughs> we do of being Well, yeah, you've been
1: through a lot. You've been through a lot, so that's to be expected. Hey, but, but I'm happy now. So, You uh, see it you, you seem it. It's a great attitude. Am
0: I is it, you know, is it is it sarcasm or is it
1: Stockholm? That's the question. I think it's halfway between the two, but we're going to get you to full Stockholm at some point. All right. That's that's been my 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 long-term con. I'm a big Stephen King head. I think people that listen to this podcast already know that. I'll cover him at any opportunity that I can, and luckily there's plenty of it in the world of development hell. And I'm just wondering, Jinx, quickly, what are our relationships, or more specifically, your relationship with Stephen King?
0: Stephen King. So Stephen King, to me, you know, I grew up in the 80s when Stephen King was sort of experiencing his first uh, sort of mega boom of popularity. And so... Stephen King just kind of always was, you know, uh, mm-hmm. and he—he he, it felt like he had always been there. And so, I grew up watching, uh, well, bits and pieces of his movies. You know, what, however much I could stand when I was a kid, I would listen to other people talk about them. Uh, mainly, my experience growing up initially with Stephen King was hearing other people talk about, you know, uh, uh, the films and the books. And I just remember being intrigued, but also thinking that, okay, that's not for me. Like I can't do that. You know, I, uh, Mm. I, it it sounds too scary, too weird to this, to that. And eventually as I started growing up, I, you know, and I've talked about this, I think even on this podcast before my, my sort of a relationship with horror movies, especially when I was a child and, uh, I was slowly ever so slowly sort of, uh, brought into the fold as a fan, but with King, I want to believe that my first honest to goodness experience with watching something of his, and I'm glad that it was pure King as opposed to just an adaptation of one of his works. But, uh, I spent the night at a friend's house, and he broke out a VHS copy of Maximum Overdrive. Oh my God! Which King directed? And you know what? I got to tell you, I loved that movie <laughs> so yeah, much, it's good. so so much. And uh, but yeah, beyond that, you know, when I when I first started getting into reading his work, um, I started with the short stories. You know, there was like Night Shift, uh, mm-hmm. Nightmares and Dreamscapes was another one that when I was a kid, I sort of. Uh, I think I snagged the hardcover of it uh, or rather a family member snagged the hardcover of it from uh, like a book sale and passed it along to me. And I was like, yeah, I'll check this out. And I remember reading stuff like the night flyer and popsy and you know, all those great stories in there, but yeah, it was just, it was sort of baby stepping my way towards cracking open. The first big novel that I read of his, which is still to this day, my favorite of his works. And that is the shining. Whoa yeah the shiny is my favorite king novel. It's the oh. first king novel that I read you know um and I just I absolutely adore it and I adore the franchise I adore pretty much anything attached to that tale. there's something about it that i I find endlessly fascinating and um yeah no, so I love it and then after that, you know I think uh I think the first king movie I ever saw on the big screen was uh thinner uh mm. which is Bachman book turned into you know a movie and I I love that I love the book but um, but yeah Mm -hmm. I I I adore King I'm glad that he because I don't know if people really yeah and maybe they would disagree with me but it feels like there for a while that King was mega popular going all the way through into the late 90s and then there was kind of a lull like not Mm -hmm. with his work not with his output certainly not with the quality of the stuff that he was putting out but it just seemed in terms of like the mainstream consciousness that he receded a bit and mm-hmm. then he came back in a big way recently. And I'm, I'm so glad that he's getting kind of this, uh, you know, this second run of mm-hmm. recognition.
1: Yeah. I like to think of it as we kind of go through peaks and valleys of Stephen King popularity and the zeitgeist. And I think yeah. we are actually right now, I think maybe we're in a bit of a valley having seen, like, a huge peak with the two It films and even the Pet Cemetery reboot. But in terms of, for me, I think the first Stephen King book I ever read proper, it's probably going to age me, was The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon. I read that oh, nice. in middle school, and it really left an impact on me. Because I think it kind of works as perfect YA horror in a, in a way that is never talking down to its audience and respects it. Um, Really amazing book, but also the short stories were an entry point for me. My two favorite that I talk about on this podcast at any chance that I get are The Jaunt, which is terrifying, and uh, Mrs. Todd's Shortcut. They're both in skeleton crew, and they're both just magical. Um, Funny that you say the first Stephen King novel you ever read was The Shining, because that's the most recent one that I ever actually um read i think it was around halloween that i for the first time ever read the shining and it's incredible it's terrifying really scary book and people are always comparing it to the film because it's famously you know very different or he famously really didn't like the kubrick adaptation because it, it it sort of went in a different direction but reading it I didn't necessarily feel that way myself. I felt like they definitely had a bit of a shared spirit. But we'll get into that soon. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I will
0: say when it comes to Tom Gordon, I just want to throw this out there as a possible future episode of your show. Oh. Um, I remember back in the early aughts, not long after that book came out, that for the longest time, um, there was bandied about the idea of a Tom Gordon film adaptation starring Dakota Fanning yes
1: was this the george romero version i don't know if it was romero but man could you imagine really amazing um are you familiar with the most recent uh director to get attached to the girl who loved tom gordon because this was about i think within the year no 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 i think it's lynn ramsey from um yeah we need to talk about kevin fame so that should be very, very interesting. And also I, the uh, Joaquin uh-huh.
0: Phoenix film that was recent, right? Um, oh, yes. Which was, I always forget the damn title of it because it's a mouthful. Forget, it's but, like
1: a sentence title, like, you are not alone, or we're going to get you. But it's yeah. absolutely brilliant. I would
0: love to see her tackle uh, mm-hmm. something from King's uh, <laughs> King's work.
1: Yes. I Now, don't take this as fact, but I think at one point Romero was attached to producer to direct and then after his passing his wife kept on as a producer and i believe she may still be producing the project to this day i believe her name may be chris or something like that does that sound familiar to you but the estate i believe is still involved
0: wow okay that's pretty great uh I would hope that George then is uh, you know, whatever the resulting film is, I hope his name is left on as a producer for developing it in the first place.
1: I hope so too. It would be really cool to see it, especially with Lynn Ramsey and Stephen King. What a trifecta.
0: You Were Never Really Here is the name of the Lynn <laughs> Ramsey Joaquin Phoenix movie, by the way, it's which is Im- an impossible amazing. title to remember. Sorry. Yeah,
1: it's just it's it's too unwieldy. But I like it. Um, Jinx, would you be into a bit of a seminar, one would say, on the original novel by Stephen King? Yeah, it hit me. Well, The Shining is a book that came out in 1977 by our favorite, Mr. Stephen King, and it was his third sort of major published novel and his first hardback bestseller. So it was a huge success for Stephen King and would eventually be made into a film. The stories and the, ca- the character and the stories are influenced by his own experiences, including the time Mr. King spent uh, a visit at the Stanley Hotel in 1974. And it also takes on the themes of his own struggles with alcoholism. So this was then turned into a 1980 film. And the book would eventually get a sequel in 2013 by the name of Dr. Sleep, which also got a film. I'm wondering, Jinx, in your own words, what would you say The Shining, the book, is about? Oh, hell. Okay.
0: (laughs) Sorry. You sprung this on me, Jack. I had to. I had to do it. Well done. Okay, so um, I would say The Shining concerns a man named Jack Torrance and his wife, Wendy, their son, Danny. Who hole up in the Grand Overlook Hotel during its off season? Jack is a writer, and he's been given the job to perform duties as a caretaker for the Overlook while it basically sits empty and weather's out all of the uh, the horrific winter snows and you know uh, whatnot until well. Uh, the, the hotel goes back into season. And during their time there, very strange events occur, which uh, make one believe that the hotel is likely haunted. Uh, uh-huh. Couple this with the fact that Jack's son, Danny, appears to have some sort of, would you call it clairvoyance? Mm-hmm. Uh, would you call it, um, you know, uh, uh, an extra sensory perception of the supernatural would, would you call it the shining like Dick tolerant does in the story for some reason? I think I I would. Okay. We'll call it the shining then. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah, ultimately um, Jack's alcoholism coupled with the fact that he is manipulated (laughs) by the spirits that run the overlook uh, leads to a pretty intense confrontation with him and his family and Dick Halloran, who was a uh <laughs> I believe a chef, right? I think so. Uh, in the, for the film hookup. for sure. Yes. Uh and it occurs to me I haven't even though it's my favorite King novel, I haven't read it in long enough that I've actually forgotten some of mm-hmm. the finer details. But uh yes, poor Mr. Halloran shows up to save uh Wendy and Danny. And unlike in the feature film, he is would you say somewhat successful? Yes, uh, in this? yes, I believe so. But, but everyone, you know, by the time we reach the ending, you know, Jack, uh, Jack, <laughs> goes up with the uh, the hotel in a pretty spectacular fashion, while Wendy, Danny, and Halloran uh, make it to safety, and you know <laughs> the 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 wonderful cold, hard sort of ending of that novel is that yeah you you have all these survivors left behind you have wendy you have danny you have halloran and yet they're all left with pretty significant scars Mm -hmm. and you you know that they're never quite going to be the same
1: well i was gonna say and they explore that with in quite a scary way in dr sleep
0: yeah 100 yes it's all about like you know danny's trauma and how he carries that with him throughout yeah not just trauma but like the ghosts are with him still. Yes, the 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 very literal demons. Yeah, in kind space. of in
1: like the sort of in the style of Insidious, like the film. Yes, they, they're, they... They're, they're latched to him, and luckily he has successful tactics of compartmentalizing them. But they're there.
0: Yeah, I love that idea, too. Oh, That's uh, so scary. But I also love, you know, I mentioned a moment ago that Jack goes up with the uh, the Overlook. What I think is kind of fascinating, and I am certainly far from the first to point this out, but what I think is fascinating between the Well, there are many differences in approach between the book and the the film, but the book ends with Jack discovering that in his uh, mania and chasing after his family, he has forgotten to dump the boiler. Uh, underneath the overlook, and so mm. it basically throttles up, and it explodes, and it takes the entire hotel and Jack. You know, right. I,
1: f- I forgot that that it was like an explosion or a fire in the book. Whereas in the film, Jack
0: basically stumbles around wildly in the dark and the freezing cold and the snow, and he winds up freezing to death. And I, I love that approach I love how that sort of speaks to each artist's approach to the specific story whereas you know in King's version it ends in fire and in Kubrick's version it ends in ice and that, cool. that totally explains their own approaches to that particular story in in such a marvelous way I think
1: yeah definitely wonderful and you got to know that Kubrick knew what he was doing with that inversion I don't think that was um, any kind of accident
0: I you know maybe not but i also kind of hope it was okay. i hope that he was just naturally sort of led to that by his own approach to it which is in its own way kind of cold and clinical you know you read king's book and those emotions are just simmering right there on top of the surface you know like he he writes with his emotions on his sleeve i think i uh, just flowing down his pen like you can mm-hmm. feel you know, probably his own shame and his own anger and all of that stuff coming through Jack when you read that novel. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you watch Kubrick's film, Kubrick's film is very cold. It is very removed. There is there's something quite clinical about it in a way. Oh, yeah. And, and it makes it terrifying, but it also kind of
1: keeps us at an arm's length. At a distance. That's so poetic, Jinx. I, I like that. And recently having seen sort of side-by-side images of the Stanley Hotel and then the hotel that they used for the film, it really reflects what you're saying. The Stanley Hotel is, like, kind of intimate and cozy-looking and very charming. And then the hotel they used for the film is, like, very sprawling and, I don't know, kind of cold and, like, block-like. So
0: Yeah, and I love cool. how that's kind of reflected in the... uh in mick garris's miniseries in the 90s that was actually the reason that i picked up uh uh, the shining in the first place uh because i knew that miniseries was coming up uh there was this great issue of tv guide back when tv guide was the size of a small digest and i had this amazing bernie wrightson painting on the cover of jack torrance basically working his way through the snow the overlook in the background he's got an axe in his hands Another one. Yeah. Oh God. It's so uh, it's funny. During the pandemic, um, I actually uh, tracked down another copy on eBay just so I could own it again. But within that cool. TV guide, they reprinted King's prologue for The Shining called "Before the Play," uh, which I'm sure we'll get into at some point down the line here. But um, yeah, they actually uh, the prologue was stricken from uh, King's original manuscript. And it was included in this TV guide to Weird. sort of uh, lead into the, uh, you know, Garris's miniseries, miniseries that was due to come out. And they also put out like a miniseries branded um, copy of the shining the book uh, with a uh, sort of artwork from that on the cover. And that was my, that was my first copy of the book and I read it for that. And to what, you know, to your point regarding the uh, hotels, The first time you see the Overlook in the Garris miniseries, which is actually the Stanley, it's actually Mm -hmm. the real place. You know, you look at it, it's just kind of, yeah, it is kind of inviting. It does look kind of charming and quaint in its own way, you know. And uh, it's like, I would would totally stay there. You know, it doesn't look all that frightening. Whereas in Kubrick's
1: film, the first time (laughs) you
0: see that hotel, it's just like, nope.
1: Yeah. I'm trying to think of that type of architecture that's like brutalist. It's kind of brutal. And I like that. Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty sure that Kubrick's
0: Overlook could beat up King and Garris's uh, Overlook. Oh, yeah, for
1: sure. On the but schoolyard, I, but I could never imagine the Kubrick one having topiaries. It just wouldn't have made sense, no, and it doesn't. No, no. So, and he and he didn't, which make which I think was a probably the right move for 1980 because there was no way they could have done that realistically, or at least in the style with the rest of the film.
0: Yeah, I mean, even, you know, they couldn't really do it in the miniseries either.
1: It um, it was it was It's hard. It's, it's hard to I, make killer topiaries. How are you going to do that? I love Mick
0: Garris' Shining miniseries. I really I do, do, too. I think I think it's marvelous. I think Steven Weber is amazing in it. I mm-hmm. love that it really goes back to King's novel. I mean, hell, King wrote it, I
1: believe. And yeah, he it, did. So he I, wrote the teleplay. There's a part of the book that I always find fascinating compared to the film, maybe because I'm queer. But so in the film... There's a part that is very infamous, which is like the man dressed up as a bear giving the old man ghost a blowjob. In the book, you deal with some similar themes, but it gets deeper into it. There's like the whole section of like a man that dresses up as a dog. And I always find that so interesting and scary. Do you remember this part specifically? Did it have an effect on you?
0: Yeah. It's one of those things, you know, I don't know that I ever immediately equated it to being any sort of, uh, and I'd be very curious to see if King has spoken about this as to what the significance of, you know, being, uh, you know, two men. Mm -hmm. But I, to me, it's just that matter of there, there's something odd about that moment where one of the participants is in costume yeah. You know, but also the idea that here's a child who is stumbling upon an act that he doesn't quite understand.
1: Yes. It's, and
0: what's great yes. is in the book, I think it's written from Danny's point of view. So even though you, the reader, kind of gets it like... He, he can't, He right? doesn't. So, and he knows that, something's wrong, though. Yeah. Yes, yeah. And so that's what, you know, that's why it's always kind of shocking because... It's the second hand shock of like a child seeing something and being like, oh, what is that? What is going on? Like, not only are they ghosts and not only is one dressed up in a costume, but also what the hell are they doing?
1: You know, what's with like this weird sexual dynamic? And I think it's explained in the book that it starts off as like, hmm, like a bit of a parlor trick where everyone finds it very, very funny that he dresses up as a dog. And then it kind of evolves from there, where I, I, I believe maybe the character kind of gets off on the humiliation, and then it sort of snowballs into what, I don't know, do you think it also could be sort of like an early representation, not a great one, but of furry
0: Fetish? I didn't want to go there, but I should I not? I, we no, don't have to. No, it's. I think it's totally valid. Um, okay, I would be very curious to see uh, what furry culture thinks of this moment. Um, I am
1: very much would like to know. Yeah, <laughs> if you're furry and you're listening, please add us because I would really like to know where you sit with this. What if that's like
0: uh, you know to furry culture? What if that moment in the movie is kind of like the sacred text?
1: yeah i'm sure it's not though like i have a feeling that they might not love it just i don't know but as a gay person i'm not like uh, offended by it in any way i find it very i don't know like liminal salacious kind of uncanny but i love it and i've always loved it i always i've always thought like Goddamn. Although I'm sure it's there's something vaguely homophobic about it, because they're going with, like, what's the most uncomfortable, sort of bizarre thing you could show, and, and part of that would be two men in a sexual act. Yeah, I, I, if that's the case, I would hope that
0: it at least, and not that this would make it any better in a sense of, like, the impact that it has, but mm-hmm. I
1: would hope that that wasn't King's intention. I don't you know, think it was like King's. No. I do think maybe it was Kubrick's. That like, that like Kubrick is playing on our, or at least 1980s, discomfort with homosexual behavior.
0: Could be. Although I think Kubrick and sex is such a fascinating sort of like mm. uh area to pursue anyway. You know, when you think about something <laughs> like Eyes Wide Shut, it's Oh like... yeah.
1: I was gonna be like, what do you mean? Like, but then of course, Eyes Wide Shut. That's the that's the text of Kubrick's and Sex. <laughs> um yeah, in the book, when you're dealing with that character or that ghost that's dressed up as a dog, he says some crazy shit to Danny. Like, I believe he like threatens to like chew off his genitals and like it's pretty scary stuff it's like he's he's really going for it when and that third act of the book where where all of the supernatural really starts to unravel
0: yeah and you know again that goes to approach where that's where king goes with that idea with that moment with that that part in the story and that that potential threat you know mm-hmm. it's in your face it's it's mm-hmm. heightened emotion it's screaming or you know it's threatening it's it's uh Violent. oh my god. Yeah. You know, whereas in the Kubrick film, you <laughs> know, he there they are nowhere near one another. They have no interest in stopping what they're doing, getting up uh and racing after him. No, like he, not at all. In or a way, I guess that's Wendy. Yeah, yeah. In a way, he is completely safe in that moment, but it's utterly terrifying at the same time. Yeah. Uh, just playing on his reaction and the fact that this is something that should not be in that moment, you know, and that he should not be witnessing it. And so, again, I, I, I love the dichotomy there. I love that, you know, uh, how King uses that moment in his story to, uh, to portray terror uh-huh. and how he gets at that terror. Yeah. Whereas Kubrick is more, again, you know, we've already said it, very removed.
1: Very. Yes, it's true in the book. It's, it, it's just way more action packed and it's against the boy. And in the film, it's not, it's against Wendy. Who's not love on what she's seeing. Another part of the book that they delve deeper than either of the films do are the lady in the bathtub. They do we like her backstory is so sad. In the book, it really struck me when reading it this year, how she is this wealthy woman that comes to the hotel with a young lover, and she's just like a bit of a drunk. And when the lover, who I think is like maybe even underage or just a lot younger than her, finds another girl and kind of leaves her, um, I think she commits suicide or dies by alcohol intake or something really bad. And it makes it so much scarier Meanwhile, she's already one of the most scary uh, characters in cinema history. I love her. Yeah. Yeah. It's... Mm-hmm. Uh, what was
0: she... her name? She has a name in the book. It's, I forget. Um...
1: Do you remember? I could look it up if you want me to.
0: Is it Laura?
1: Lauren? Lorraine? Something like that? Hold on. Let me find. Um, Leah. Leah Bedlam. Oh, no. Okay. That's the actress. Sorry. I'm sorry, the actress's name is Leah Bedlam? Is best known for playing the super sexy babe in the bathtub. No, oh, in Yeah. That's gotta be a stage name. Yeah, I, it doesn't sound accurate to me. I do remember her being scary in the McGarris version, too. Like, yes, like And it's uh,
0: Cynthia Garris, right? His wife who played. Is that uh,
1: that his wife? Yes. Yeah. Cool. That's cool.
0: just remember one of my earliest Fangorias. (laughs) uh, I, it was actually on that. And I believe it was uh, the cover story. And she was actually the, uh, the centerpiece on the cover. And they talked about, uh, because obviously she's beautiful in the film, but then when she turns uh, and I love that it was the same actress playing both characters, I believe. Uh Yeah. or both versions of that character, but I just remember reading <laughs> in high school, like uh, sitting in the back of like my study hall or whatever, reading how they made that miniseries and noting that the way they made her skin so translucent, they actually had these ridiculously like crazy thin layers, like these thin appliances, and they would glue oh. them in place with uh, KY jelly.
1: Ew. and Ooh. yeah and it's Ooh. like so it
0: give it this weird sort of like that layered look and uh <laughs> i just remember uh you know explaining to a friend who was into movies like that at the same time i was just like yeah and then he used ky jelly to actually glue the blah 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 blah, blah, blah. In, in the in which version in th- in the uh the the garris yeah yeah okay so, yeah, I remember that happening and uh, actually explaining it in whatever class we were in and uh, just a, a, a nosy teacher overhearing and just being like, why are you talking
1: about KY Jelly? What? Oh, yeah. I mean, and you had a good reason, actually. You, you had like, one of the wait, few excuses. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. I can explain. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I have an answer for you. Her name was Lorraine Massey. Lorraine. Okay, cool. And Mm -hmm.
0: yeah, her backstory is quite different from, uh, well, some of the other approaches to, well, for example, I'm sure we'll, I hope we'll get around to it at some point, but talking about unmade, uh, you know, projects in the shining verse, uh, Glenn Mazzara actually wrote a prequel film that Warner brothers sadly never made called the overlook hotel, And part of his version of that story tells a completely different origin story for the woman in the bathtub.
1: Oh, really? Because I'm on it now. And apparently, and I don't remember this specifically, but in the book, so she was known to seduce young bellboys to having sex in her room. And then eventually does commit suicide by setting her wrists in the bathtub, which I guess, of course, makes sense. So what was her backstory in, in the version you're talking about from the Overlook Hotel?
0: So, um, and a little bit of background on that. Uh, About a decade or so ago, uh, Warner Brothers was looking at doing a follow-up to The Shining, and one of the possible approaches was to do a prequel. And so they, they opened up pitches, and according to Glenn Mazzara, who ultimately won the job, Glenn Mazzara, by the way, worked on uh, The Walking Dead during some of its earlier seasons. He did uh, Damien, which is a uh, massively mm-hmm. underloved and underappreciated uh, show, uh, which is an extension of uh, the Omen franchise. Mm-hmm. Um, he noted that a lot of the pitches went to the Grady Twins. And doing, you know, the iconography of the two little girls and all of that. And he went back to, uh, again, talking about that Shining prologue before the play. He went back to the very beginning of that story to the man who actually built the Overlook Hotel. And that idea fascinated him. He was like you know, we always see haunted houses in movies. He was like, I wanted to tell a story about the man who builds the haunted house. Cool. And I was like, fuck yes. Why can't this movie exist? Yeah, uh, when that's I was, good. I was lucky enough to talk to him. Uh, I did a piece for bloody disgusting for phantom limbs about the overlook hotel. And so his story mm-hmm. concerned Bob T Watson, who was kind of a robber baron type who carved out a hunk of a mountain with the sole purpose of putting that hotel there and uh making it like this big shining beacon in the wilderness. And uh in doing so, we find out when he did it, you know, there was kind of a donner party incident that had happened on that land before. And it's just there's this feeling that the land is cursed. You know, that there is tragedy meant to happen there time and time again and it will replay itself over and over and over. And so we, we follow this story of Bob T and his wife and his young sons as they are living in this hotel as it's built up around them. There's this amazing montage, I think, at the end of the first act when the hotel literally builds itself up around them as he's explaining where everything is going to go. You know, And over here is going to be a ballroom and then you see the ballroom built up in its place, you know, and then so on and so forth. And we get all the way to opening night and Bob T's poor son through a horrific accident, uh, winds up dying in a very, very bloody way. He, uh, he chokes on something, I believe a piece of steak and this being like, you know, the late 1800s, early 1900s, something like that. Uh, I don't think the Heimlich maneuver had been created. So there is a doctor there who tries to do a tracheotomy to pull the uh. thing out. And the boy, either possessed or just in, you know, being utterly manic because he's dying, he grabs hold of the knife the moment it pierces his skin and tries to pull it away. And he winds up opening his entire throat in front of his father and mother. And he bleeds out on the table there. Oh, no. Yeah. And so it just gets horrible from there. And it feels like, you know, it doesn't hit any of the same beats of The Shining necessarily but it feels like there's a similar arc there where you know they they start to all go a little bit mad they're all being played with by the various uh spirits that roam the overlook who existed there before the overlook was ever built which i think is such a cool idea um anyway by the time you get to the final act bob t winds up uh killing his son and his wife and himself and um at the end i believe it's revealed that they are so somebody actually purchases the hotel and renovates it and they're going to reopen it and basically forget about the tragedy that had befallen you know the family who lived there before because uh, the place, it, it had never quite taken off because of the tragedy with the sun. Nobody wanted to stay in this hotel. So it wasn't a matter of the hotel being empty because it was off season. It was empty because nobody wanted to fucking stay in this place.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And then on top of that, with Bob T and his wife and everybody you know, dying, it's just nobody wanted to touch it. But eventually somebody comes in, they renovate it, they're going to reopen it to the public. And on opening day, when people are bustling about, what's so great is that Bob T is you know i think he's like a bellboy you know and the wife is like tending the desk and the son is like doing this they've been absorbed into the hotel and now they're a part of it you know and uh we find out that bob t's wife's sister you know she she comes back to the hotel to look it over the site you know of her family's death as it were and she winds up renting a room and she is drowned in the bathtub um
1: Oh.
0: by her uh her sister uh with the implication being that one of them will become the woman in the in the bathtub, uh oh, which I, I think is such a neat sort of lead up to the events of the shining uh apparently, there was going to be a moment too um where Bob T sits in the bar and he is called over by a gentleman who is sitting there and we meant to understand that it was the guy who was the head of the Donner like party that resorts to cannibalism and murder, you know, amongst themselves that kind of cursed this land. And Glenn Mazzara basically wrote this big monologue about this guy sitting there talking about the evil of the place and the evil in men. And, uh, you know, all of this wonderful, it's a wonderful monologue. Uh, it's, a, I wish that script would leak and get out there, but, um, he wrote it with an eye with the hopes of it being uh, read by Jack Nicholson. He wanted Nicholson to actually Uh. do a cameo. And he was like, so there would be this idea that, Jack Torrance, or this guy who was the head of this party before the Overlook was ever there, you know, he is cycling through all of these ages like over and over and over again. He is cursed to constantly walk that land in different forms, which kind of would explain more about the Kubrick movie in Mm -hmm. a way. Um, in, a, in a marvelous way. But yes, anyway, sorry, I'm taking the long way around here. Uh I love Overlook Hotel script is fucking marvelous. It would have made an amazing movie. Uh, but just at about the time that they were going to get to the point where they were going to pull the trigger on it or not, Stephen King published Doctor Sleep, and then mm. all of a sudden you had a Stephen King-pinned Shining <laughs> sequel that you could adapt instead, and so they went with that
1: yeah that sucks i mean it's great that we have doctor sleep but it kind of sad that that got eradicated from canon cuz that sounds beautiful
0: oh it would have been it would have been truly amazing i think and plus you know they were mm-hmm. looking at i don't think he was actually going to do it uh he said you know the thing with the sons like he was a father so he didn't want to do a role where he had to watch his son die in front of him and possibly murder his other son but they had approached brad pitt to be the lead and so you can just imagine if warner brothers was willing to put the sort of money into this movie that would have made them feel comfortable approaching somebody like brad pitt to star in it You Uh can only imagine who would ultimately have played that role, you know, like somebody massive, like an uh, Mm A-lister. You know, I I can only imagine something like, you know, could you imagine the Overlook Hotel starring Matthew McConaughey? I
1: I actually think that would work. I do too. I think think it would be amazing. Yeah, I think that would be really cool. Or, you know, anyone British. Um, Yeah, (laughs) because I was going to ask you, what do you think? What do you think has sort of stained this land? And I guess you answer it from his perspective, which is it was this Donner Party incident that sort of cursed this land. But what do you think it is in the book? Do they ever explain why this hotel is the way that it is?
0: You know, I don't think there's anything concrete given. I always like the idea of just, you know, the notion of bad land, you mm-hmm. know, that there are just places on earth that you should not go. I love uh, that. Terry Stephen King. Yes, Lessus Wall. I mean, you know, 1408. Like 1408.
1: There's, Pet Cemetery?
0: Pet Cemetery is a, a great one, too. You know, there, there are so many uh, places in King's kind of oeuvre. You know, you have the idea of the thinnies, you know, the spots yeah. between worlds where things can leak through. You have uh, stuff like the mist. I was just going to bring one. it up. Yeah, yeah totally. So, um, and it, so it feels like it's definitely. You know, if you look at it hard enough in King's work, then yeah, there's going to be an explanation there. You kind of get it in a way. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. at the same time, I love not knowing. I think it's scarier yeah. not knowing what the fuck is going on there.
1: Yeah, you see his... Would you Would you agree with me when I say this is where you see some of King's Lovecraft influences? Oh, 100%. Which Which he has, obviously, like, often. But he, he does it... Um, I don't know with with class you don't see you don't see through too much and I like that yeah I love that he's sort of you know he's
0: he's it's all the rage now in comic book universes but I love that King messed around with the idea of multiverses and mm-hmm. you know multiple I remember uh, when I was a kid those big hardcovers came out uh, it was such a big deal when they came out but uh the hardcover releases on the same day there was a new Stephen oh, yeah. King novel called your, Desperation yes. and a yep. new Richard Bachman novel called The Regulators yep. and you could push the hardcovers together and the artwork lined up <laughs> yes. very stutter Kane, you know it's good uh, yeah and so but i love that idea that you have two novels featuring the same characters in two entirely different settings <laughs> and two entirely different stories and you
1: realize like oh, these are different realities. These it's are so different. genius. Yeah, I think he called them shadow novels, which I like. I love that. Which is I've never read the regulators, but I I did read Desperation, which is one of the most chaotic Stephen King books I've ever read.
0: It has like it has one of the most beautiful endings for one of his protagonists. I uh, the writer <laughs> character with yeah. the shotgun shell and the hammer and his final like <laughs> raw and they do it in the movie, and I like the movie. I really do. And I, I do too. Ron Another Perlman.
1: McGarris joint.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And I, I think Garris really, really did a great job with bringing yeah. that to the screen. Uh, Ron Perlman is perfect just perfect
1: casting. It's like, like my absurdly God. perfect casting.
0: But yeah, yeah. Um, I, I do love that idea in King's work, though, that you have characters that repeat. And recently, you know, and I'm sure we're going to talk a little bit about this show later, but. When we uh, we
1: had Castle Rock, yeah, we are gonna get. But yes, we had. Was it Bill Skarsgård? Uh, that's is that the younger one? No, I think so. He is. Yeah, he is of okay. the Skarsgård clan, who
0: is apparently going to be the Crow uh, yep. coming up. And you know, I'm I'm very curious. He's he's a marvelous actor, and I'm sure he's gonna uh, do a great job. But I think so too. Don't need a Crow remake anyway. Uh... <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I well, <laughs> we don't, we don't, the, the me. crow is sacred to me. So yeah, I, I yeah. get a little, but at the same time, like if you're just going to go back to a graphic novel and adapt it, you know,
1: m- but, maybe but, more I mean, it's not called up. crow. So, you know, they're not doing that. Yeah. Yeah, I know.
0: So it, but, it'll be curious. But um, anyway, Bill Skarsgård in Castle Rock plays a character called the kid who is basically found underneath the Shawshank uh, prison and you you eventually get into a story that involves multiple universes, and you find out that this kid is pretty malevolent, and he might even be the man in black. He might even be, you know, Randall Flagg, like that guy in King's uh-huh. Fiction who is the ultimate bad guy, right? Which I thought was so neat to consider. And there's even this thing in Castle Rock where the kid had not been seen in over two and a half decades, just over two and a half decades, like, say, 27 years or so. I knew, yeah. And they which is what? Bill Skarsgård in the role after Bill Skarsgård had just played Pennywise the clown in Andy Muschietti's, you know, big, you know. Yeah, of course. Uh, Two IT films. So I thought that was kind of interesting. It's like, okay, so I don't know what they're doing here.
1: What does that mean? It's so. Ch- and then, of course, they're, we're never going to get any more. I feel like that's rotten and kind of trollish, but it but, is
0: genius. But then Stephen King, just a week ago on Twitter... Asked everyone if they thought that the Man in Black, that Randall Flagg, and you know, I forget how he set it up, but he was like, you know, people are asking if it was Screen uh,
1: Rant, I think he was talking to, yeah,
0: okay, uh, where he said something like, uh, you know, who's the scariest villain or best villain or yeah, you know, Randall Flagg or Pennywise the Clown, and he was like, and why don't they ask if they're one and the same, right? Like, and if they are one and the same, then you had another Scar's guard. Playing Randall Flag in the recent stand. Oh miniseries. wow! Oh,
1: I'm down. Getting a headache.
0: You have Bill Skarsgård playing the kid who is essentially like you know the Man in Black or Randall Flag, who also played Pennywise in another film. I feel like I'm Charlie Day with like all of the uh the diagrams behind me and the strings yeah. connecting it. yep yeah. But it but it feels right.
1: You know. Well, I mean, they're making us do this. They're <sighs> yeah. You're not going to get this, I don't think, but it's very, like, Taylor Swift and her fans, you know, leaving us these little breadcrumbs. I am not a Swift fan. I'm going to delete that. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah now I will say it.
0: about Castle Rock, and I know we're going to get there, but maybe I should hold off, but I will say that there is a marvelous, shining sequel tease buried in Castle Rock that we should probably mention at some point.
1: Oh, interesting. I have not watched Castle Rock, so I would want to know more about that. But we're going to get there pretty, pretty soon. I think before we do, I kind of want to wrap up on The Shining, the original film. Because I think while I wanted to go sort of deeper into it, I do think we've tackled a lot about it. Um, I guess my question for you is, because I think this is sort of always out there, is film versus book. Where do you land? like do you have a preference or or do you see them sort of as two different things how how do you compare the two i think
0: um i think the novel is a perfect novel i think the movie is a perfect film um mm-hmm. i think the film is a terrible adaptation? adaptation yeah and a masterpiece of a film um i think that um the book has way more heart and it feels way more satisfying in its own way. It's more uh, emotional. Way more emotional. Yeah. And I feel like, and it definitely has something to say, like, um, at its heart. Whereas with Kubrick's film, uh, Kubrick's film just works purely. And I'm not saying that Kubrick's film says nothing. Like, fuck, they made a documentary about what it could possibly mean.
1: Um, and the answer was nothing.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. But uh, with Kubrick's film, I think it's just so marvelously made and so fucking frightening, and uh, it's 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 just a masterclass in uh, in in suspense, and it's, I adore it.
1: It's really scary. He has this quote about making it that I read earlier today that gave me the chills, and I want to share it with you guys here. So, speaking on the theme in the movie, uh, this is what Kubrick had to say. There's something inherently wrong with the human personality. There's an evil side to it. One of the things that horror stories can do is show us the archetypes of the unconscious. We see the dark side without having to confront it directly. And I think that's exactly what he did with this movie. It's like peering into the abyss of human darkness but we don't know what it means. So it's kind of like being that little boy in the hallway seeing the furry ghost and knowing that something is terribly, terribly wrong, but not really having the ability to put your finger on why or what, just knowing that something is off. And I think that's what the movie feels like to me.
0: Yeah, and I get that. I, I too wonder like if maybe you know, in a strange way, like you watch the first half of The Shining and you wonder if Kubrick is even remotely interested in the supernatural at all. And if he's maybe just more interested in making the the ghosts and the demons, uh, you know, just simply representations of Jack's own demons that he's battling with. And certainly in both tellings of the story, book and movie, that's the case. But it, it feels like, Maybe Kubrick was almost a little embarrassed at the more genre leaning stuff in the movie. But then, you know, you get to the final act and he leans full bore into it. And it's like, well, no, that's not it's not really the case at all. But I I wonder I am reminded of that. uh, There's this great story that Stephen King tells where it was uh, it was the middle of the night and he's woken up by uh, a phone call. And it was uh, Stanley Kubrick on the other end. This was during the uh, the development of the film. And Kubrick just out of the blue, he asked him, he was like, Do you believe in God? Well. And King said, you know, yes, yes, I do. And <laughs> and Kubrick just said, I don't, and hung up. And <laughs> it's like, you know, you you can kind of see that
1: in <laughs> yes. each telling of that story. Big time. It kind of does feel why these two stories are at odds with one another. <laughs> they're yeah, they're completely Inverted, but that's why it works so nicely. I love that story. Um, yeah, it's mm-hmm. great. I, I,
0: I, if only it could have been recorded.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't think they ended up being such good friends at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, Stephen King's a bitter Betty about it. Just he is, so bitter Betty.
0: And I get it,
1: like in a way,
0: you know. Hopefully, and I think I'd read this somewhere that Mike Flanagan's uh, Doctor Sleep and trying to. Um, reconcile the Kubrick film with the King novel and, you know, sort of synthesize them, uh, you know, before or actually during while he was making doctor sleep, you know, into one vision uh, that it actually sort of made King feel a little better about the Kubrick film. So, and I love that. that.
1: I I hope that it's true because King deserves to feel better (laughs) because it's his baby. But yeah. I mean, it's a really, as you said, terrible adaptation, perfect film. Agreed. Agreed. I think now that you've led us down into Dr. Sleep Boulevard, I wouldn't mind talking a little bit about it before we head into the land of HBO's Overlook series. Yeah, so Dr. Sleep is this 2013 follow-up to The Shining where you see Danny Torrance as an adult sort of coping with his trauma of having survived the initial... I don't know, actions in The Shining, and now he uh, eventually is led back to the Overlook and also has to sort of battle with this group of psychics called the True Knot who are out there trying to kill kids because it gives them extended life, and it's kind of like a, I don't know, a mixed bag of different storylines. Have you read Dr. Sleep, the book?
0: I have to admit, I have not read the book. I wanted to when it first came out and for whatever reason I put it off and I just, I haven't found my way to it. And, um, I, I guess I always wanted to revisit the shining before I did that. And I haven't read that book in a while. I kind of want to read them back to back. Uh, if that was ever going to happen, you know, anytime soon, I, I, I'm sure it would have happened right before the film came out and it And I just, I was so busy, I didn't get around to it. And I feel like a bad King fan, is what I'm saying.
1: No, you're a good King fan. Because between the two of us, I believe you're the one that sort of has more love in your heart for the film adaptation. But I think that has something to do with the different versions that we've encountered. Is this correct? So you're a fan of the director's cut of Dr. Sleep? Is this true?
0: So I will say, leading up to the film adaptation that Mike Flanagan did a few years ago, um, I don't know if you remember, but they remastered the first film, uh, the Kubrick film, in 4K. And before they plunked it down onto disc, they released it in theaters for, like, a one-night Fathom event showing or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I went to go see it on the big screen. I already loved the movie, but let me tell you, like, watching that on a large screen, it's, it's a completely different experience. It's marvelous. Yes. And um, – so there was that. And then I think at the very end of it, there was this great little featurette with uh, Flanagan and King talking about Dr. Sleep. This was around the same time that um, the, the second trailer for the film would come out, which uh, the second trailer for Dr. Sleep was like one of the best movies that came out that year. So I could not have been more pumped to see Dr. Sleep and i get to the theater it's like it's not even opening night it's like premiere night it's like the thursday 7 or 8 o'clock showing right and i'm i'm grinning ear to ear i can't wait to watch it and cut to like 2 hours and 15 2 hours and 30 minutes later and i walk out and i was just kind of like oh you know it was it was, it was good it was fun mm-hmm. i was you know this and but you mcgregor was good and the performances were good and i have a crush on rebecca Ferguson and her little hat and yeah you know, that's um you know that's about it that's you know it was it was it was it was fine it was that's perfectly fine and being a completist uh of course i picked up the 4k when it came out only to find that it had the uh, director's cup on it which was 30 minutes longer and I was like, you know what? I'm going to give it another shot. I'm going to watch Flanagan's cut. The man hasn't let me down yet, uh, except the theatrical version. Uh, I, I love all of his previous stuff. I uh, I love Absentia. I love uh, Oculus. I adore, before I wake, The mm-hmm. Haunting of Hill House, even though I hadn't seen it at that point, is brilliant. So I pop in his director's cut. And 20 minutes in, like you just feel that it's a better version of the film. It moves better. It it feels like it has weight, like uh, it's broken up into on-screen chapters, nice. uh, which actually, if I if I am getting this correct, actually uses the uh, the chapter titles from King's book. Cool. Um, it's thirty minutes longer, and yet it feels like it moves better than the chopped up version. There, the characters arcs are better. There's more heart. Uh, it's just everything about it on every conceivable le- uh, level just works better. And so this movie and I've seen the director's cut a few times now. So this film in its theatrical cut went from a movie that I thought was, you know, fine eh, to being a fucking masterpiece. I think it's Flanagan's best work. Um, and I, I love The Haunting of Hill House. I love Midnight Mass. I think Dr. Sleep is his masterpiece. Uh, I think it stands alongside Kubrick's movie pretty damned well. And uh, I cannot say enough good things about it. I adore it. So, Josh, I know you you, you have some hard feelings towards it based on its theatrical you know, version. And I get that. Mm-hmm. All I'm saying is, is that I think the director's cut will make you a fan. I really do.
1: Can we make a deal? And here's my deal. I will 100% watch it and report back if you promise to watch Blind Manor and report back. Okay, fair. I will. Because <laughs> I would have to say, and I've said it before, that is my favorite Flanagan project. Personally. That
0: is my, you know, that's my Flanagan blind spot. And I think I was kind of put off by, like, look, I, I know he was involved with it. He developed it. Uh, the other directors like I believe uh, Axel Carolyn directed episodes and I love her uh, (laughs) and it has a lot of great people involved Uh, so I'm certain it's great it was just one of those things where he directed every episode of the first season and so we all talked about hey isn't it great when directors do that like uh, Carrie Fukunaga who did uh, all eight episodes of the first season of True Detective like it's great when a filmmaker directs every episode because it feels like a more singular cohesive vision and then you get the Bly Manor and it's just kind of like uh okay yeah he started it off and then other directors picked it up but I was just kind of like oh so it's like every other season of television okay cool you know Mm -hmm. I'm and here's the thing I that's a silly Mm -hmm. silly reason (laughs) to not watch it it really is and I understand that I'm just saying that's what's kind of
1: Listen, we both have our baggage, okay? (laughs) Uh, And we're both going to put our baggage down, and we're going to watch them. And um, we're both going to report back. But yeah, I'm very interested on revisiting uh, the the director's cut of Doctor Sleep. Everything that you're saying to me does make sense, because I trust Flanagan so much, based on everything I've seen. And it does kind of feel a little disjointed the theatrical version, which is already long enough by the way well it it feels like a flat tire it it really
0: does <laughs> it feels like it, it doesn't operate the way it should it's kind of airless it just uh you know it's just kind of blah you know, whereas you watch the version that he intended, and it's like all oh, right, that's why he's a master like he he's and you know, already stop, a master. Stop fucking with this stuff, Warner Brothers. Like, yeah, okay, I'm sorry. You're gonna have to lose that fifth showing of the day in every movie theater. But you know what? At least the movie you're going to be showing is a movie that people are going to want to come back and revisit time and time again, and that they're certain to pick up on physical media or stream again down the road. You know, instead, you you hack a half hour out of it, and it just it's it sucks as a result.
1: Listen. This is the era of TikTok. Okay, this is not the era of three-hour epics. Um, and yet, every Marvel movie <laughs> is like three oh, yeah. hours long. You're right, and they make a billion dollars. You're so fucking right. Uh, you're, I'm gonna have to tick I'm gonna have to check this out. I am fascinated. Doctor Sleep. Full, oh, and also, like, even the theatrical version, some really scary stuff in it. The Lorraine Massey, like, lady in the bathtub stuff, like, chilling so scary and uh the just the idea nod. that she
0: follows him like it's bad enough that he Ugh. had to deal with her in the hotel but then there's no escape from bathtub lady like come
1: never on. and then ultimately bathtub lady's own um fate is terrifying getting trapped inside of a little box for all of eternity Yuck. well
0: well you know what don't scare kids bathtub lady yeah,
1: bathtub lady Get it together, bathtub lady. Um, yeah, and the death of um, the poor kid from Room <laughs> was horrifying. Is that worse than the theatrical in the director's cut? Um, the, um, I forget I, his name. I've only ever seen the theatrical cut
0: once. I feel like it was in the director's cut a little rougher. Like it feels it's like it goes on already. forever.
1: It does feel it. In the, in the theatrical one, it felt like it went on forever. Which honestly, ballsy. Killing kids in Hollywood is already a ballsy move, but then the way that they did it in Doctor Sleep is just brutal.
0: Yeah, I mean they they make you feel it in uh, in in that scene, and that's you know, and that's what makes the true not so terrifying is that what I love about those characters is that they feel like family. They love one another. They look out for one another. They're, yeah. they're funny and they're charming and they're charismatic and they're kind to one another. And, you know, it's kind of like the, the this is a weird parallel to draw, but you think of something like uh, the Fireflies in the Rob Zombie movies. You yeah. know, when it's just them, they, they seem cool. Yeah. But it's just that they have no regard for anybody else. It's No,
1: especially not kids who are psychics.
0: Exactly. And so when she, uh, there's that ice cold moment where the kid is pinned down to the ground and he says something like, are you going to hurt me? And she just gets right in his face and she's like, yes.
1: It's just. Ooh. Ugh. Ooh, it's so scary. And she's so good. There was on Twitter a really funny behind the scenes image of her and the kid. <laughs> he's just making a funny face i uh i love her and i'm glad to see her really getting her due post dune yeah she's brilliant i i love rebecca
0: ferguson i love her uh character in the mission impossible movies like she brings a lot of class to those films
1: well i have not seen them but i will take your word worth, on eat worth watching for her alone that's enough of a self for me and on that note, how would you feel if we head into the Overlook series itself? We should, right we after should.
0: we mentioned one thing. Yes. Tell me so that. since we're talking about Flanagan, and we're talking about The Shining, and we're talking about Unmade Projects. <laughs> One of my white whales for Phantom Limbs, uh, the, the, uh, for listeners out there who don't know, I write a column series for Bloody Disgusting concerning unmade uh, horror movie sequels and remakes that were developed but sadly never came to be. One of my white whales is to chat with Mike Flanagan about his shining prequel, Halloran. That was all Um, going to be about Dick Halloran uh, before the events of The Shining. And I don't know much about it. I don't know what the hell it was going to be. I just know it was something he was looking at. And man, I wish we had gotten it because Flanagan rules. And I'm certain that him playing in that sandbox again would yield (laughs) something else marvelous. But uh, (laughs) sadly, there's very, very
1: little information out there. I'm almost glad it didn't happen, just so we can get a Phantom Limbs on it one of these days. You know, almost worth it. And, not to get give too much away, but Flanagan will come up again in this episode, before the time is up. So, we'll see how that plays out. But yeah, as we've promised this entire time, there was going to be an HBO Max limited series based on the Overlook Hotel From The Shining. So, all the way back in 2019, J.J. Abrams and his production company Bad Robot Productions signed a massive, ginormous deal with Warner Media. I think it was worth somewhere around $250 million. And reportedly, he was going to produce original series and films for Warner for their various divisions. And this would have included HBO and, of course, Warner Brothers Pictures. One of the original titles announced for this deal was going to be a series simply titled Overlook. And it was going to be a series going back to this iconic location from The Shining film and book. So Overlook marked the, I think it was going to be the fourth collaboration for Bad Robot that was going to be in the King universe. Uh, I believe they'd already done the horror series Castle Rock, which we've talked about today, there was the Hulu limited series Eleven Twenty Two Sixty Three, based on a really incredible later career book by Stephen King, and then I think most recently was the Apple TV or Apple TV Plus show Lisey's Story, based on one of probably the most personal novels by Stephen King, and maybe even his favorite, if I'm not mistaken. And then, of course, we were going to get this Overlook series. So J.J. Abrams and Stephen King were really in bed together in terms of making TV shows in the late 2010s. Um, This show was reportedly going to be 10 episodes, a 10-episode series directed by, you know, Abrams and company. Castle Rock co-creator and executive producer Dustin uh, Dustin. Thomason, as well as co-executive producer Scott Brown, were going to potentially write the Overlook series. I've heard people compare what was going to happen with Overlook to what a did with the Bates Motel prequel series, sort of how they approached Psycho based on this iconic Psycho location with the Bates Motel. So, according to Variety Online... Overlook, the prequel series was going to explore untold and terrifying stories of the most famous haunted hotel in American fiction, which I think is true. Um, But it remains to see what or if any of the original ghosts mentioned in Stephen King's novel, as we were talking about like Lorraine Massey any of them, the twins, were they going to be explored or were we going to see completely new stories? It was never actually reported. Unfortunately, this is not a series that has yet to come to fruition. So by August of the same year, it didn't take too long, HBO Max executives, who apparently liked the project, did state that they felt like it wasn't appropriate for their current slate and decided not to move forward. At Warner Brothers. It's reported that the television series. um, Is still being shopped around. To other networks. A rumor is that it could. Land at Netflix. Which is an interesting location. For a Stephen King property. Considering how in bed they are. With Mike Flanagan. Leading fans to speculate. Wildly. That if Netflix did land. The Overlook series. Could Flanagan end up directing or show running what do you think do you think if it landed at Netflix there's a chance that Flanagan would would hop on the project I I have
0: no idea um <laughs> I would think if Flanagan were going to do something again in that realm he would probably want to I and this is pure assumption right uh I would I would have to imagine he would want to build it from the ground up he seems like a storyteller that is more keen to do that than be a gun for hire you know um Mm -hmm. if you know because overlook it sounds like if they're shopping it around it isn't it's got to be more than just a title you know i would i would i would I would imagine not. Who knows? But you never know. Like, I, I think that would be great because I would love to see it can be read as a direct sequel to that film, even though he had to recast a lot of the roles. Even when he did recast, he mm-hmm. used the same costumes, obviously, you know. Uh, Some very similar looking actors. Similar to look. I mean, you know, if if. If he wanted to look past what Kubrick had done and uh, you know Hugh closer to, you know, simply Hugh closer to King's work, he wouldn't have cast Alex Esso. As Wendy, who is you know the mm. Wendy of the film is not the Wendy of the novel. They're quite different, both of them.
1: Yeah, uh, one's blonde and one's not.
0: Yeah, but, and even personality-wise
1: too. Like
0: I, I feel like Rebecca De Mornay in the Mick Garris... is way closer. Yes, yeah. yeah, and so but he he didn't go that route. He chose Alex Esso, and she she looks quite a lot like Shelley Duvall once she's made up. It's a scary, bit, but the her performance and her voice were insanely accurate to do that so you know i i I really Really. appreciated the fact that he did his own thing but he kept the kubrick film canon and if there's going to be more shining verse related stuff i kind of hope they do that same thing i hope that we keep all of that as canon i do too with so and and that's Mm -hmm. what hurts about you know Like Glenn Mazzara's The Overlook Hotel would have been such a marvelous big screen, big budget, prestige horror film. And I I would hope they would have done the same thing. You know, there is a moment in it where um, Mazzara actually wrote the uh, famous photograph being taken, you know, with uh, with everybody in it. You see Jack in at the very end of the first film, right? 1921. How the fuck is he there, right? And so... (laughs) In Mazara's script, he writes that moment where that photo is taken, but there is like a ladder in the way, like standing in front of, so like you wouldn't be able to see the person standing in Jack's place. So you could keep the movie canon still. You could wonder like, okay, right behind that ladder, that's where Jack is standing, like toasting, right? Uh, And you could only imagine, could you imagine sitting in a theater and, you know, a, a packed house and a couple of hundred people all at once trying to crane their heads around the ladder to see behind it, you know, not being able to. I, I love that idea. That's scary. Uh, but yeah, anyway, I'm taking the long way around of just saying whatever they do to follow up The Shining, I, I, I hope they follow Flanagan's model and they stay true to what's come before.
1: You know it would be cool? In in line with the first two seasons of the Haunting of Hill House, how they're going, or of the Haunting series, oh, how they wow. take classic works Josh, of literature. No, yeah, if yes. they do the Haunting of the Overlook Hotel, I somebody cut you a check. Just <laughs> my God, yes, because it, it's totally in line with taking a classic piece of gothic literature, just a little bit more modern, and, and adapting it into the series. And it would work so well. Somebody
0: needs to work up that artwork of like, uh, you know, <laughs> actually, yeah, well, there's the, uh, you know, the haunting of Hill House. I think they did it with Blind Manor too, but you have the the house itself, right? Sitting in frame and the lit up uh, windows, essentially acting as eyes because the bottom half of the image is somebody's face, right? Uh-huh. Somebody needs to do that. Make that artwork with the Overlook Hotel, with the, uh, not the Stanley, but the one from you know the uh, the the film, the Kubrick film, and uh, yeah, put the lower half of like somebody's face underneath, and just do the graphic. Call it the Haunting of the Overlook Hotel. Tag Flanagan and Netflix both. Maybe Bad okay. Robot if they have a Twitter account. Just we need to make this happen. I've never wanted anything more. So yes, I really
1: appreciate that, and I feel like I'm part of this journey. And I really hope I do get a paycheck. And can we bring back Victoria? How do you say her name? Pedretti, who's in the first two seasons. She's so good. Um, I she want to... she can be in anything she wants to be. Yeah, she's so fucking good. So yeah, um, so yeah, Flanagan. I know you listen, Flanagan. You told me you're you're sitting here with me. You're my roommate. Wait, what? Yeah, he's my roommate and I listen. He's my best friend. Okay, are you... Are, um, you, are you? I you know he does not listen to this podcast. I mean, not to my knowledge. I mean, who knows? You know, maybe but, he does, and we just don't know. Andy, hi, Mike. Hi, <laughs> um, you know, Mike. Just want yeah. to say hey. He needs the haunting of the Overlook Hotel. It's a mouthful. It needs to happen. Netflix, please. Please. And you know what? If you do that,
0: then, you know, if you do an entire season, if you do like 10 or 12 hours... Then you know what? Go ahead and do Glenn Mazzara's script as a couple of episodes. Yeah, Do easy. your Halloran prequel over the course of two episodes. You oh know? yeah,
1: it could all it could all happen in ten episodes. Yes. We we need to make this episodes. happen. Who
0: who do we need to yell at?
1: Um, Flan. The Flan Man. The Flan Stan. Z- that's us. Okay, well, he's not gonna listen to this anymore. I think but... Jack will show up at some point. Just 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 get him in there. I don't know
0: how. Mm-hmm. Uh, I yeah. he he's long painting. since retired. I don't think has he. Uh, Jack Nicholson? Yeah, he's he, he been retired shield. for a decade, I
1: think. So okay. Well, there's always the exception to the rule, now, isn't there? Um, but this probably isn't it. But yeah. <laughs> um, Jinx, do you think we're ever going to get to see an Overlook series or film? Do you think it's ever going to happen?
0: Um, maybe, you know, I'm certain that we haven't seen the last of this franchise. I know that Dr. Sleep definitely underperformed and that's sad, but you know what? Release the director's cut next time. Warner Brothers, you pricks. Yeah, it's Uh, your fault, buddy. That movie would have had legs had it been the masterpiece it it Mm -hmm. is in his director's cut. It it would have stayed in theaters, damn it. Anyway, um, will we see an Overlook series? I don't know. Maybe we'll see a movie. Maybe we'll see a series. But I feel like we're not done with
1: The Shining World yet. And is that what you would want as a fan? Would you want to see it continued? Absolutely. Or do you think, yeah, me too. (laughs) Um, And I will say, you
0: know, whether that's Flanagan, whether that's uh, Bad Robot. I mean, Bad Robot did a marvelous job with Castle Rock, You know, which is such a weird series in that Mm -hmm. it's very faithful to King's characters and his world but it told completely new stories that he himself did not write so it's kind of like in a way it's it's like fan fiction but at the same time like how cool is that that we have a television series even just two seasons of it but a television series based on Uh, an author's works that he didn't actually pin himself while said author is still
1: alive. Like, that's just mad to me. It's a little mind-bending, but it's very cool. And it's kind of sad that we didn't get to see that go for a million seasons and do a million different things. We
0: did, because, you know, the first season played around with uh, King's iconography quite a lot in really fascinating ways. The second season, I think, was a big improvement. Uh, Not the first season was bad. It was great. The second season... You know, touched on uh Annie Wilkes from Misery and Lizzie Kaplan was absolutely amazing as that character. And uh it also played around with Jerusalem's lot, but not in the way you would expect, not with vampires. What it does instead is kind of marvelous. But I will say, in the first season, there is a character played by Jane Levy, uh Mia from the Evil Dead remake, or well, it's not a remake, whatever it is. Evil Dead from 2013 or so. Um And her character is named Jackie Torrance. Oh. And uh, Jackie is a nickname because everyone knows her crazy uncle Jack. (gasps) Oh. And so there is a setup at the end of the first season that she is actually going to take a road trip and check in uh, or check out rather the Overlook Hotel. And it's like, oh, I really want to see that season. Like, I want to see her character get mixed up. Like, I want to see that sequel. And so I wonder if, given that that was Bad Robot, even though it wouldn't have been Hulu, they were shopping around at HBO Max, I don't know what the right situation would be there. But I wonder if Bad Robot would have been able to take the character that originated in their series that aired on another channel, another streamer, and just pulled them into their Overlook series, you know? Uh, hmm. I, w- I would love that. I would love to think that they could have done that.
1: I think so. I, 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 they could have done anything. That's what's so brilliant about it. It's too bad. And it sounds like with the way that you're explaining they handled different Stephen King properties in Overlook, they would have done it, but it would have been something like completely in a way that I would never have guessed. Like, it maybe not, not with ghosts. Maybe it would have been like a totally different way in, which could be cool, too.
0: Yeah, you know, who knows what they would have done? Maybe I know there's very little information out there. Maybe they would have uh, they would have gone back to before the play, the Stephen King prologue, which uh, took place in various time periods. You know, maybe they would have done the Grady twins. Maybe it would have been a sequel. You know, who knows? Like it's uh, the what I love about it is that King's writing is so rich and the worlds that he creates like are so dense, that you feel like you could walk around and and live in them, and you know I I think that's probably why we have stuff like Castle Rock, why we would have had something like Overlook, you know you as a reader feel like you can hop into his worlds and just walk around so why shouldn't other creatives feel like they could get in there and create, you know, their own stories within the worlds that he has sort of laid out, and um, for that reason alone I wish we would have gotten Overlook
1: Mm mm-hmm we deserve it. So, with that said, you and I officially have green lit it so people get to work. Uh, Jinx, if you were hypothetically to escape the dungeon, where could people find you on the internet? So, you can find me on
0: Twitter. Uh, it's at jinx1981. That's J I N X 1981. You can find me on Instagram uh, posting weird. Fucked up shots of random things that I find here and there, uh, <laughs> you know, heavily filtered. Oh, <laughs> it's cool. uh, Jinx 740941. Uh, otherwise, you can find my writings on uh, bloody disgusting. Check out Phantom Limbs there. And uh, otherwise, somebody please, God, send help. How long has it been?
1: <laughs> I Ach, you, you love it, get into it. Thank you so much for listening to Development Hell. If you enjoy this podcast, then please do us a major favor of leaving us five stars and writing a positive review. It really makes all the difference in the world. We'll see you next week with a brand new episode of Development Hell. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast
0: Network.